Welcome to Up for Debate, a podcast where our expert panel discusses some of the topical, often debated, and sometimes controversial subjects in healthcare and medicine. Through an open discussion, physicians, nurses, and medical professionals sit down and give their honest perspectives and opinions on healthcare topics we hear about or see in our everyday lives, providing you with easy to digest information on some of the more complex issues. This is Up for Debate. In today's digital world, we have the ability to seek out answers most we probably deem as credible, whether we feel slightly under the weather or in the midst of a serious health condition. If you open up Google and just type in the words, my symptoms, you'll see an autofill bring up the phrase, my symptoms are, even before you add the P in symptoms. It's such a popular phrase used by many people to either self-diagnose so they can present their symptoms accurately to a physician in hopes of getting an accurate diagnosis and receive proper treatment, But in other cases, those who search out answers may take the first thing they see at face value and thus not find it necessary to see a doctor. Hence the topic of today's Up for Debate podcast, The Dangers of Dr. Google. Today joining me to discuss this common practice is Dr. Jason Sionlar, cardiologist with Hackensack Meridian Health, and Dr. Adrian Pristis, Corporate Medical Director of the Hackensack Meridian Health Centers for Sleep Medicine. Thanks for being here. Sure. Good morning. So I'm curious to know from both of your standpoints, did you see it as a gradual shift where, you know, over time people were coming to you more and more saying, you know, I looked into this or I was on WebMD, I think I might have this? Or in your experiences, was it like a light switch went on and there was kind of a time where you remember like, based on this day, this year, or this kind of time frame, that's when everything started taking off where patients come to me and they obviously did so much research before talking to me first. I think it's the, the scenario where it came on subtly. I don't think there was one particular occurrence in, in our medical practices that, that, that flipped a switch, if you will, where people just started showing up. I think a lot of folks have been doing some research uh, over the years. I think the, because it's so easy on Google, you can, you can get family members, extended family members, helping you or just frankly coming in with patients with information off the net and they come with preconceived notions of what they think they know which ordinarily they don't and and it it can it can be helpful when they're educated and that's all they're after is to be a more educated patient i think that's what every doctor wants but often enough they're they think they've become physicians and that becomes a problem now, uh, do you see it as, you know, as technology advanced, it was just more and more um, as there was more resources, or um, do you feel the same way Dr. Persis feels about that? So it's an interesting question. I, I do agree that the trend has definitely been um, for patients to come in with more information on their own. It depends on a lot of factors, though. It depends on the age of the patient, you know, the younger generation growing up with the internet at their fingertips, that's the first thing they're going to reach to. Um, so certainly it depends on their age, their demographic, where they're coming from, you know, region to region even, depends on where you're seeing patients. You know, I don't want to date myself either, but, you know, we grew up at times when there was an encyclopedia set in your living room, and that was the way you could get a lot of information. You know, you look up a condition, you know, appendicitis or something in the, in the encyclopedia set, but now, I mean, that's five seconds away on your phone. So the information is out there, and of course that's going to change what they know coming in, you know, either to your office or to the hospital setting. Now, with all these situations, we always talk about how there's been research done, and there's a bunch of studies, but I mean, just to kind of go into one briefly, uh, just looking through some research online, I saw 
that there was one that was conducted a few years ago in Australia where they surveyed kind of 400 people that went into the emergency room and really all the doctors that saw them said, oh, you know, 70% of these people were, you know, well-informed and they asked really articulate questions and it kind of helped us along in the process. But then conversely, it was something that uh, the study came out and it said, yes, but for their more minor symptoms, they were 70% accurate, but when it was the case of something more rare, it was only about 30% accurate. So I'm just curious to know, um, you know, if you hear something like that, it seems like it's a study that's done to really benefit the patients. But as medical professionals, do you see that as something that is good to put out there in the public where, oh, 70% is a great number, the people that did it all, like they really hit it on the head and it was helpful. Um, but from a physician standpoint, I guess it also does kind of go back to the previous question. Does that overcomplicate the process or really just lead to anything that might, I guess, elongate processes in like emergency rooms or any kind of people that need immediate treatment? It's a, it's a broad spectrum of, of answers because the patient is the patient and no matter where they get their information from, they're gonna educate themselves in one way or another. So it's their personality. Are they gonna overdo it? and diagnose themselves, or are they just gonna educate themselves so that when they come to the doctor, they can ask some intelligent questions. I encourage people to write some things down, write the questions down so that they don't forget what they wanna ask. But, you know, I, I don't know, I don't care if it's 1960 or, or 2019. People are gonna be people, and they're gonna be nervous or not. So I'll give you an example of something that commonly happens in my practice. Because of the portals that are out there and people can get the radiology results in about three days. Fibrosis is a common term used in, in a, a CAT scan result. If a patient looks that up, the first thing they're gonna find is pulmonary fibrosis. That's one of the most awful diseases out there. It's extremely rare. Absolutely. It doesn't happen yeah. that often. And so now they have pulmonary fibrosis and they've got the whole family in my office thinking they're gonna be gone in a few months. It depends on who you are. People are gonna read these things and then get alarmed because they got to that, that horrible diagnosis and they're not gonna read any further. And in some respects, that's, that's the, the search engine's fault. They, they, if they truly wanna educate the patient, they should, they should explain some things a little bit better than they do. Say that the most likely scenario is this, the least likely scenario is that, and let the patient kinda of go from not so bad to the worst so that they read the whole thing and not and not be a misinformed patient rather than the informed patient we want to talk to. Becoming a doctor in my family, I have found this, um, this problem has hit me very close to home because anytime any relative or friend has any minor medical concern or major and they hit the internet, immediately I get a call, text, something to ask me what it actually means. So uh, it's very dangerous and I completely agree you tend to get very dramatic answers. The worst case scenario is always presented on top. In some cases, maybe that's a good thing. You have chest pain, you could be having a heart attack, you should call 911. But in other cases for routine testing, radiology reports, et cetera, it's hard to interpret those things, even after years and years of training and experience and practice. You know, it's a double-edged sword. I think anyone that would tell you otherwise would be oversimplifying it. It's definitely a good idea to have some background, a little bit of uh, knowledge on the topic is a good thing. You come in asking the right questions, but it's still about asking questions. And the doctor is there to answer it based on not just 
a right or wrong answer. If it was as simple as punching it into a search engine and getting the right answer, then I don't know if we would need any physicians Just have robots doing this in the future. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I totally also acknowledge the fact that it's very meta of me to bring up a research study about people who look up their symptoms before seeing a doctor because it's almost like people will look up a research study and then that will help them decide <laughs> if they're then going to look up their symptoms. So, I mean, it just gets more convoluted and convoluted as it goes along. There's so many ways to go about it. It's not even just, you know, looking up your symptoms, it's should I? Oh, well, here's the first research study I saw which says, oh, well, a lot of people had good outcomes when they did that versus not a lot of people had issues. So it's just an interesting way that that worked itself into there. Now, I'm also curious because, you know, we have a cardiologist on and we have Dr. Pristis who works with neuro and sleep that, you know, there's probably a lot of common things that you do see when patients come to you. There might be some things that, you know, every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're like, I've had nine people come in, they all thought they had this, and it all turned out to be this. So I just wanted to see if you could speak more about some of the common things that you see that people might think they have only by searching things out and then coming to see you, just because I wanted to see if there was any kind of overlap amongst conditions that you guys talk about, um, but then also see if there's some other things you might see more frequently or less frequently if a patient comes into you and says, Doc, I feel it this way, I looked it up, I have this, am I right? It's just kind of an interesting way to look at both standpoints of what you two experience. I, I think that probably the most common symptoms that we would both get would be shortness of breath. Definitely. And, and so shortness of breath, there are books written about that alone. There's a book called Dyspnea, and it's a big fat book. It's a very complex thing. If you go on Google and look shortness of breath, I wouldn't, e I wouldn't even know where to begin with what you would find. It would be so many things. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a great example of why you should educate yourself, maybe write down the exact words that you could use to describe your shortness of breath and come, come to your primary care doctor, because a lot of times they'll figure it out. And if not, they'll direct you to a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, or, or somebody else that they think would be the right, right uh, person to see. Be a patient, don't be the doctor. Educate yourself, be the best patient you could be. The best thing you can do for yourself is come to the doctor prepared, educated, so that you can ask questions. Write things down. I encourage people to write things down so that, that you're, we're not sitting staring at each other waiting for you to think about the question that you wanted to ask. So. Just be educated, be a patient, and tell me what's wrong. And, and I think that's where, you'll, where you'll, you'll get the best bang for your buck, so to speak. Writing things down, great idea. I, after my first visit with a lot of patients, I asked them to journal symptoms and when they have it, what are the contexts, what's the scenario. If you can come with that information, that's so much more valuable to your office visit and the time that you have rather than spending time looking up online what you think it might be. Exactly. Telling me the scenario, oh, I was climbing up steps or I was you know, racing to catch a bus, those types of things. I had it twice this month, twice this week. I'll give you a really good one that I get all the time, palpitations. Right, so palpitations usually are benign, you know, all, in most people, um, meaning something that's probably not too serious. Um, but it could also be a clue of something that could be more serious or dangerous, like an irregular heartbeat. Something that I see all the time is called atrial fibrillation, or AFib, people call it for short. And depending on your age and your risk factors, that actually could be quite serious. There's a small risk of stroke in some people. But palpitations in and of itself, something that 
is very concerning to the patient. If you ever spend five minutes talking to these patients, you know, I feel my heart beating in my chest. It's irregular. I can feel it skipping a beat, et cetera. Very dramatic symptoms. And usually they mean almost nothing in terms of, you know, the danger and, you know, long-term, you know, how you're going to feel or whether you'd be sick or not. So that's a really good example, I think, of something that people, if they looked up online palpitations, you're going to get the worst of the worst answers. And yet in the right context, in the right scenario, it could really be almost nothing. There's something we didn't even touch on, and it's when they look at the side effects of medicines. Oh, that could drive <laughs> that could drive you crazy. Oh my gosh! You know, everybody gets everything, and you're all gonna have a very serious reaction to this. So I have patients not taking their inhalers because they're going to get the side effects. Okay. So, so it, that's a topic in and of itself. And, yeah. And I don't mind saying this, but uh, our legal colleagues are the ones that are probably to blame for that. And I don't, I think it's important for them to know because it's all about, it's all about disclosure. And I, I understand that's important, but some of, some of these side effects are so absolutely rare that they shouldn't even be discussed because it comes with, it comes with the risk that patients are not going to get proper care because now their grandson went on the internet and told them, don't take that medicine, it's the most dangerous thing on the planet. Right. And now you're never going to get that out of their head. And they're two completely different people with right. different circumstances. So yeah. how, what do you do with that, Adrian, if you don't mind my asking you? So do you, I mean, you can't not tell the patient about possible side yeah, effects. You, you're right. But, you know, because, and, but then there's also, and I, I'll tell you from my experience, there's also the risk that now you're injecting this into their head, like, oh, are my legs swollen? Oh, uh, you know, is this happening? Is my skin changing color? Like, if you start <laughs> thinking about it, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't you routinely look at my skin and say that I think it's changing color, but... Or are I, my palpitations yeah. related to my inhaler? Exactly. So, exactly. And that's possible. So I, I always approach it with the good and the bad. It's, it's like a lot of things in life. What's the risk? What's the benefit? You know, the risk of, of not treating your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma is that you can end up in the emergency room. And yes, that, you could die from that. So this inhaler carries with it a less than 1% risk of any of these side effects if you piled all of them on top of each other versus the risk of, of not treating your COPD and running into a variety of problems. So yes, there's a risk, but here's a predicament we're in. You have to make a decision. You should take the path of least risk, and that would be to take the inhaler. By and large, that's the answer. And that's how I go about it. And I and I and I kind of not throw it back on them because I don't want to unload on them. But I, you know, the decision's theirs. They can they can decide how comfortable they are. If they're going to be up all night because they think that this inhaler is going to harm them, it's probably not worth it. We'll have to approach it a different way. For me, the uh, the number one medication that I spend all my time discussing as a cardiologist. I don't know if you can take a guess. So it's statins. So it's yeah. cholesterol medications. Right. So. I probably spend more time, minute for minute, in any office visit talking about the side effects of, possible side effects, actually, of cholesterol medications. You know, and that's a, a whole different podcast in and of itself. <laughs> that's a different, uh, you know, talk about research. But um, that's something that, you know, first of all, in the media has definitely gotten a lot of bad press. And I, you know, I, I don't want to get into the specifics of it right now, but Speaking of inhalers as possible side effects, I mean, statins, really, statins are the class of medications that treat cholesterol generally. Um, they've just very, very um, 
They get a lot of press about possible side effects. And the truth is, uh, the short answer is that it's very rare to actually have the the true side effects of them. And there's things you can do. Um, So a discussion with your doctor is much more appropriate than just stopping it or saying, I'm never going to take it. The flair for the dramatic. This is reality TV. So <laughs> it's, the, it's the great, big, exciting, controversial something or other, and that's what gets the attention. So when you see the inhaler commercials on TV, at the end of it, yes, you could die. You know, and, and that's, that's on TV, and it's out there. So it's, you can't take it back. So it does require a lot of explanation. Yeah, and I mean, that even takes it into another way where we're talking about, you know, search engine up, like searching out your symptoms and all that. But I think with the prominence of all these pharmaceutical commercials and all these medications, do you see it now as, you know, not just people coming in saying, I have symptom XYZ, but rather, I saw a commercial for this one uh, pharmaceutical drug and the way they describe it, it sounds like me. Do you think this is the right prescription for me? So I'm, I'm curious to know if people come in and it's always like, I look this up, I look this up, I look this up, what could it be? Versus now with these commercials out and about, do people come in and say, I saw this one prescription, do you think this is what I need based on my symptoms? Well, that means that the commercials are doing a good job. If the patients are coming to you with the names of them <laughs> to ask you whether you should be on them. Yeah, they want to be in the sunflower patch at the end of the commercial <laughs> running in the sun. I, I, don't, I, don't, I actually yeah. don't see that too much. What, what I usually see is when I bring out an inhaler to demonstrate it for the patient, because that's something I always do, they say, yeah, I saw that on TV. So that's the more common scenario, I saw that on TV. I, I generally don't have people asking for a particular drug, and that's that's just my experience. I don't know if Jason has the same. I, I agree. It's a lot of times with blood thinners. Um, there's different types of blood thinners for different conditions. You know, from heart attacks to uh, same condition with AFib, you be put on a blood thinner. And if I say, "Oh, I think this might be a good one for you," like, "Oh, I've heard of that one." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> during the football game or during daytime TV or whatever it is. So. And we talked a lot about the pros of, you know, self-diagnosing to a certain extent, like writing down your thoughts and what you think it might be and just kind of keeping journals and bringing them to your physician. But there are also a lot of cons and one that I would think is a large one that even when you see those commercials, if you feel a certain way, seek medical attention immediately. And now when you can search and search for hours at a time, if it's something minor, it might not be an issue, but are there any situations where someone might be looking up things way too long and they either then see you just in time or they can lose valuable time in seeking treatment only because they were looking so in depth into something they might think they have or they might think that they're able to treat it on their own? Is that an issue you think is prevalent as well? In my experience, it's a small one. You know, in our business, Jason and I, it's usually chest pain, shortness of breath. You know, those are dramatic experiences, and people don't kind of wait. They don't wait. They, they'll call somebody. It might even be their daughter, but they'll call somebody. They might call 911, which often is the right thing to do. I, I just tell my patients, if, you, if you're in trouble and you're nervous, to call 911. It's rarely a mistake. And if it is, so what? Or no. someone else will notice it. Like yeah. You look short of breath, you don't look right, you look right. pale, you look this, you look that. But usually, I agree, if people have these symptoms that are serious, they're not spending a lot of time looking those up. I feel like it's the 
more innocent conditions that might be going on more chronically, you know, something like a nuisance that's going on for a long time that someone will look up because they're on the fence of whether they're going to go see a doctor about it or not. That's right. For for me, it's it's what's called a COPD exacerbation. It's kind of a bronchitis. Half of those are not reported to doctors, uh, mostly because they're, they're not too bad. Um, but it, it, what they don't know is it, it is it is an important thing to report to your doctor because there are certain things that are not recoverable, specifically lung function, may not be recoverable if you don't address it properly. Now, uh, Dr. Seinlar brought it up just before that, you know, if someone in his family or friends feel a certain way, you know, they're guilty of Googling, um, trying to find out what it is. But, you know, we're talking about just patients who are out there, but do you find yourselves kind of preaching this same message to your friends, family, coworkers that, you know, what you see out there is probably not, you know, at the top of the page exactly what it is to go see a medical professional. So I'm just curious as to that, you know, you do this professionally, but then you find yourself out in your personal lives having to preach this exact same message to the people that you see on a regular basis. All the time. That is something I spend so much time trying to talk people off a ledge that whatever they read was not likely. And it honestly, it happened to me recently. I have a family member with a cardiology problem and he he saw a different physician and got sent down a battery of testing that may or may not have been necessary. And then we're left with some information that we don't know how to interpret. And he went down an internet rabbit hole. It could be this, it could be that I'm going to need bypass surgery, you know, and went through basically, and this is more about the patient. It's not about the doctor. For us, of course, we feel bad for the patients. And when you come in seeing that someone's been staying up all night, worrying about something frantic, you know, they leave you messages and you have to call them back. And I mean, of course we feel bad for them, but I feel much more bad for them that they have to go through this torture of having to think they have something that they likely don't have. And that's why I always give the recommendation to my family members and friends. It's like, don't put yourself through that torture of going online and finding something that might be the case. If it's something might be the case, you're not getting much relief out of that, you know, out of those that piece of education that you're giving yourself on the internet. It's much better to talk to someone who has the experience to interpret that information because information is just that. It's not out of context. It doesn't really mean much. The family and friend dynamic is interesting because they kind of know they can reach out to somebody. So they can, they can allow themselves to get a little bit nutty <laughs> the uh, because they can, they're going to call, they're going to call Adrian up and they're going to, they're going to get their question answered right away. So what I think of my family is just that I know them a long time. I know a lot of them are nutty <laughs> and that's just the way we feel about our families. And I just, uh, sometimes my text back is no, that's it. I don't say anything else. No, that's not it. You know, I don't go into detail. The answer is no. Uh, but and they need when, that. Maybe they need that sometimes. They, they do. <laughs> I know they need that. But uh, I, I think we have an access to a physician. Um, it just makes it easier to 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 just talk to somebody quickly to alleviate the need to jump on the internet or 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 do whatever. Uh, so so I have one relative that's a hypochondriac. So I get calls from her all the time. Just and one. Just one. <laughs> just one. The the rest of them are pretty cool, but they, they get nutty once in a while. The um, the flip side of that is something you alluded to before. When the other doctor knows that a patient has a relative that's a doctor, sometimes they get all the tests because 
this is not happening to me. I'm not going to embarrass myself by missing something. that's not in their best interest. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to miss something because this, this guy's brother's a doctor. I'm not missing anything. So they get a battery of tests. I, I, I run into that often enough. So to wrap things up, I think we've covered a lot that there's both pros and cons to doing a little bit of research before you see your physician. But I wanted to see if you could just leave us with some final thoughts it might be a patient that comes to see you in four months. It might be someone that's going to see you tomorrow. What are some things you want them to know or do in advance or just to prepare themselves? Tough one to say, but I'll say this. Be a good patient. Understand what, what your diagnosis may be or your symptoms. It's, it's a good idea to write things down, write some questions down, even if they're questions from your daughter. So just come prepared. Uh, a little bit, understand a little bit about the diagnosis if you already have one, so that so that we can have a meaningful conversation. Utilize the time properly. Don't get yourself all wrapped up in 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 every differential diagnosis out there, because chances are the patients are are going out of my office with a different idea than than the ideas they came in with. So just be a good patient and be prepared with questions and and things like that. Absolutely, I, I mean I completely agree. I think we're in this era. I mean, it's safe to say we're in this era of shared decision-making. And what that means is that you, may, you don't have to show up knowing what you have, but you know, the doctor can talk to you and give you possibilities of what you may have and you know, what workup may need to be done and which way you want to proceed. And that's the doctor's job, really, to give you those options, and then you make those decisions together you know, with his or her experience and medical knowledge and then also your background and what you may want to be done or not want to be done. There's different things people feel comfortable with. They may be more of a minimalist or more like, I want everything possible done. And that's something that you and the doctor come to a decision together. So I think that's the important takeaway here, that shared decision-making is a real thing. It's a change in medicine, you know, over the last several you know, in the last decade or so that to really be a highlight of medicine. But also there's a limit to that. You, you shouldn't be expected to come in with knowing what you have and what you want done, like an a la carte, you know, menu that you order. I would like my A4 cardiac cath or, you know, B, I want my, you know, whatever lung testing or, but also it's a good idea to ask, what can you tell me about sleep studies? Do you think I need one? You know, something like that, because that way the doctor can really give you the best information, and then you can come to a decision together. Well, thank you very much both for being here with me today, Dr. Jason Sienlar, Dr. Adrian Persis. A lot of great information. I think everyone that listens uh, to this podcast is going to either think twice or at least think differently next time they uh, feel a certain way and try to figure out what they have before coming to you guys. So thank you very much for being here. Thank Our you. pleasure. Thank you. The material provided through this Health You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.